0: Welcome to the Convex Conversation with me, broadcaster Helen Fospero. One of my first guests on the podcast series was music legend, Whispering Bob Harris. His dulcet tones and wonderful rock and roll stories were a perfect place to start, and he most definitely left us wanting more. So when I read he teamed up with his mate Danny Baker to tour the country with Harris and Baker's Backstage Pass, it seemed the perfect excuse to give him a call for part two. I've got my Backstage Pass and I'm in a dressing room at the new Wimbledon Theatre with two of the nation's favourite broadcasters to find out what they're up to and, I suspect, sit back and be entertained. Danny and Bob, it's so lovely to Thank be you with you both. very much indeed.
1: Helen, I promised I'd show you the bright lights. Oh,
0: <laughs> I tell you what, this dressing room, I don't think I've ever been anywhere quite so glamorous, Bob.
1: I know. See, I told you it would happen and here we are.
0: That's,
2: that's the thing. People never realise, um, I've done over yeah, not the 300 dates now, and people are always disappointed when they come back. They say, oh, oh, they're used to seeing pictures of, Beyonce and Madonna are backstage, and, and puppies, and the walls painted. in In Britain, by and large, this is as good as it gets. Yes. A pretty, you know. It 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 does the job. Functional. But it, it's functional with no hint of luxury. Yes. Uh, because they always spend all their money quite rightly on the what they call front of house and back of house. I've been places where you, you you literally could never shave. You know. There yeah, no, yeah. There's no water. Some of these theatres beautiful out front, the Matcham theatres,
1: you know, but backstage they um. I want to have plugs in the sink. Some of the the rock and roll venues that Danny and I have played over the years. I mean, my first introduction to a glamorous backstage dressing room was the marquee.
2: Oh, my, yeah. that was literally a dungeon. When it, it was, was a literally dungeon about half the, the size
1: of this one. Graffiti all over the walls. You'd squelch into the carpet. I think there was a carpet. I well, don't, like, there, I there don't had remember that. All luxury. T- 20, 20 years carpet, before, <laughs>
2: <Yes>. <laughs> but they do, that was But that literally was a dungeon behind the stage. It and, was. And, and your yeah, bands used to squeeze in there. And you never knew, you used to notice it as a younger man, but as, as you get on it, but you think, oh, okay. I mean, like you had to drag that chair in here, but it's it, yeah. it makes British Rail waiting rooms look like, uh, you know, Paradise Lust. (laughs) Does it,
0: in a way, Danny, remind you of your TFI days? Because you had Mm. every big star you could think of, from Madonna to Rod Stewart, all the big names. Everybody, And it was pretty... Basic, Basic, wasn't and that it? Was TFI. Intentional, though. Was it? I think
2: that was a great leveler. Chris uh, wanted the show to look. Um, I mean, on on screen, it looked like that, you know, and it was it was very nice studios. But behind it, we weren't going to do all that up. You know, we were, we didn't know if would be there for three months or three years, or, and as it turned out, seven years. But that was the thing that was always explained to Turns when they turn up, as Bob and I often talk about on the stage, it's never the actual people themselves. You hear these stories about demands that are made. It's not them. It's the people around them, the scribble, all these people whose nefarious jobs are to keep supposedly keep stars happy the times we were told oh they want this they want that and we said we don't do that we don't do that and don't do the show if you don't want to do it. Um, it wasn't me really rude, but that's there it is. They'd all been in places mm. like this. Mm. And if it's good enough for Arthur Esky, it's good enough for Absolutely. me and
0: <laughs> I haven't heard Arthur Esky's name for such a long time. <laughs>
2: before your very eyes. <laughs> well, before
0: my very eyes. And yes, right. uh, you really have, Bob, Robert Plant, actually, to thank for this exciting journey that the two of you have been on for the last few months.
1: Well, I, I got a call from the Beaudley Festival early in 2019 asking me if I'd like to do uh, an evening there. And they said, we've got this great idea to match you with Danny. So the two of you are on stage together. What do you think? And I said, that would be amazing. So I got in touch with Danny, said, would you like to do it? And Danny said, yes. We said yes to the Beaudly Festival. And then, as you know, Helen, the events of that summer rather overtook me. And it was at the BBC show, wasn't it? It was
0: Country Fire Live.
1: And I was scared to death that something was going to happen? What well, uh, I really oh health wise, I, th- I thought I thought
2: Helen might hit you or something. Oh, I see. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: I, so I was doing sort of one step at a time at the time, and the conversation with with Helen was the very first thing that I did. Oh. Anyway, then. After we'd spoken a bit later, Danny tweeted that he and I were going to be doing this gig together. And the festival immediately said, oh, don't tweet because it's already a sellout. So we met up in, in, it was in October that year, and we met up at the side of the stage, me and Danny, about a minute and a half before we went on. Yeah.
2: It, it wasn't that much because I didn't know you were there. Yeah. And I thought you knew I was there. And then we run into each other while the introductions are going on. Yes. And you said, what are we going to do? I said, it'd be brilliant. We just Serious. Right. I've been doing this fifty years. You've been doing it. You know, as I always say five times longer than that. If we can't get an hour and a half out of this, we haven't been paying attention. So we just went out and did pretty much the well. There's the same format, if that's not too strong a word that we do at the moment. And it was yeah, it was, it was about two hundred people. Then it, it it sailed along. We entertained each other. Hopefully, we entertained everybody else. But there was one part of the room seemed to be enjoying it more than the
1: others, wouldn't it? Well, Danny often tells the story, true story of being in Led Zeppelin. For thirty-five minutes, I was in Led Zeppelin for thirty-five minutes. Do you know, um, you
0: alluded to that when I came to see you with the Shepherd's Bush Empire. I was in Led Zeppelin the for thirty-five way minutes. I through was in the Led show. Zeppelin. I was dying for you to go back to that. Why were you only in Led Zeppelin for thirty-five minutes, Danny?
2: It's, uh, it was. T- it took place at a Wale show in um, about 1992, 93. and I was doing a show six oh six, a football show at the time. But my very good friend Danny Kelly, who talks like this, Danny Kelly, he. Um, was the editor of Q Magazine, and Q Magazine had their inaugural, not to say debut, not to say premiere awards that year, the Q Awards. Uh, <laughs> he invited me along, even though I didn't write for Q, to sit at the top table with him. And one of their things they were doing was getting Led Zeppelin back together to accept a lifetime achievement. Led Zeppelin had been seen in public since 85 at the disastrous Live Aid appearance they did, and just, they were not a functioning outfit at all. As they haven't really been ever since, apart from that one night at uh, night the O2. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll have some of that to see Led Zeppelin back together again anyway they didn't show up for the first half of the show and everyone thought they're not going to come and he said well they've said they would and there was this empty table it was a heavy old room there was all lots of people there donald fagan and george clinton and various people around the room but this one table remained empty until the halftime, when they said ladies and gentlemen we're now going to take a 45 minute break for dinner and then we'll continue with the second half of the gig, and everyone was milling around and the door opened and at the side in came Jimmy Page, Robert Plant, John Paul Jones, Jason Bonham and various kind of minders and people and they took their seat and I'd had a couple of drinks by then <laughs> so I decided what I'm going to do I'm not going to let this pass. I ran to Tower Records which is about five, six minutes run away and I ran all the way there I bought that box set that came out uh, the one that had the uh, shadow of a uh, Zeppelin passing over a Corn Circles that had just come out and I ran back there and I I don't care. I'm going to get this signed. I never, never but, because I never did anything as you did, Bob, in uh, the early decades of our careers. I never got any photos of him. I never got any signed. Not because I thought it wasn't cool. I just thought he didn't realise we're walking through history. So I'm not going to miss this. And I, I went to the table and was surrounded by journalists and people taking photos and led up and besieged. And there was an MTV camera crew. And while I was waiting there, Robert Plant looked up and he's a massive football fan. And I was doing the show six, I he went, hey, Danny Baker. I said, yeah, he went, come here, come here. And he made room and they shoved the chair in. Everyone budged up and he said, What you were saying about West Brom and Wolves and we can and he started chatting us about this. And we sat there and he introduced me all round to the he of Jimmy, he down Daddy, you know Jimmy Page didn't doesn't follow football. And we were around the table and I did this. And I was sitting with him for about thirty-five minutes. And then uh, there was this crew filming and so said, I've never seen the footage from MTV Europe. And they said, ladies and gentlemen, now take your seats for the second half of the Cure Wars in 1915 to And I stood up and this cameraman said, obviously he wanted it for the record, he said. Who is this? Because they've been filming me talking with Led Zeppelin, and Robert said, "This is Danny. He's our drummer now." And I said, "No, I said I quit musical differences." I said, "No, I'm not. I'm not." I said, "I've just. We can't make this work. I've tried, uh, but I'm walking out on the band." And everyone laughed and they walked away. But
1: technically, I'd been in Led Zeppelin for the last thirty-five minutes,
2: according to Robert Plant.
1: There was a, a little knot of people in the audience that were finding this really, really amusing, and it was great. The whole evening went down very well. Danny and I then went off into a little green room they had backstage. Yeah. And a few minutes later. Folk come up and pinched my
2: rear end. I turned around. It was Robert Plum. He was in the audience. We had no idea he was in the audience. No no and he was laughing. And he said, that story. He said, I've forgotten that. Did I say that? I said, yes, you did. You remember it. Yeah. And that's why on Wikipedia, there I am in there for 35 minutes. And he loved it. And he loved the whole show. And he said, didn't he? What did he say to you?
1: He said, you should take this on the road. And, and you so have. here we and are. Have, and, are. And, 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 that, was the, and that, was, that was the trigger, wasn't it? That Danny? was the
2: trigger. And some nights I tell that story, some nights I don't. And the, 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 there's a floating table of about 150 stories, <clears> and <throat> depending on what we do on the night, and they've added to all the time. I've got two tonight I've written down. That I think, oh, I'll try and do those. But we never know. You never know. You don't know what we're going to do with it. And I hope they're entertaining stories. They seem to flow, and everyone seems to stay to the end and laugh a lot. But yeah, and Robert said he was going to join us on some, but that hasn't happened yet. So we are no. holding him for that. But he, he has come close a couple of times but it is it, that's that's why we're kicking our legs up at our age because Robert Plant told us to well yes. that is a lovely <laughs> yes. story
0: and also I mean Robert's headlining or one of the headline acts at Glastonbury he's at Hyde Park this year with the wonderful the beautiful singer Alison Krauss mm. and one of your Robert Plant claims to fame is that it's really because of you that Robert discovered Alison who he's brought out all these incredible tracks
1: with so yeah I mean I, I it was a Saturday evening um Robert told me this later on. I was playing a track of Alison's called Stay, which is such a beautiful song anyway. And it's it's one that demonstrates her voice probably as well as anything she's ever done. It's just beautiful. And obviously, I didn't know, but Robert was listening to the show. He dropped his son off after they played tennis together. And he was driving home through the back roads in Worcestershire. It was a lovely evening, middle of the summer. It only still did a little bit of light in the sky. Stars were out, you know. I mean, it was really beautiful, and I played Alison Krauss. And he stopped the car, he turned the volume up, stepped out of the car, and stood under the stars, listening to Alison's voice. And he said he f- thought that it sounded like a voice from another planet. About four or five months later, I was in Nashville and uh, Alison came in to do a session with me. And she said, oh, Bob, because she talks like this. She said.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We'll leave that in, Danny. totally. I hope his crowd gets
1: to hear it and can respond. Yeah. Oh, Bob, one of your friends wants to send you his love. I'm, I'm working with Robert at the moment, we're gonna do and And they didn't yet quite know what it was, but you know, T-Bone Burnett is a common denominator between all three of us. And uh, I think Robert had been in touch with T-Bone. He'd said, I'm I, Alison. And so they'd actually started working together in Nashville and I was so thrilled. So then when they began to put together the tour, the Raising Sand tour, Robert said to me, you must come when we do Nashville, you know, I'd really like you to be there. Uh, I'll fly you over and it's, it's my gift to you. But then we sat down with the tour dates and Nashville wasn't included. And I said, well, but you're not doing Nashville. He said, no, I don't feel I've earned my stripes to play Nashville. You know, wow. he said, the bar is so high here. But he said, pick another, pick another date. And they were doing New Orleans. They were doing the New Orleans Jazz Festival so i went to that instead well, was uh, sweet, absolutely sweet four yeah, days in it was magnificent that yeah. wasn't
0: too shabby was it no, yeah. right? and i
1: watched them play on stage and one of the things that really was a thrill robert robert had taken part in the show that i'd done celebrating sandy denny called who knows where the time goes and of course sandy was a guest on led zeppelin 4 on battle of evermore Alison and robert recreated Battle of Evermore on stage oh, that right. afternoon. It was really a she down the spine moment. Yeah. She's
2: the only person ever to guest on a Led Zeppelin album outside of myself. <laughs> uh, yes. that, that, I think we, we share Quite that. So. We're the only two people Led Zeppelin allowed into the band. Yes. So uh, Me and Alex are the two of them. But so Bob's saying that getting at, you know, sweet job going out to what if it's job it can be said here, this sweet you going out to New Orleans. Uh, the terrible thing is and this should set an audience against us but it's, it doesn't. It, it, I'd like to think it's endearing. We have over the last 50 years or so been flown all over the world to see groups. People only know me but you know, for the football shows or whatever is or selling soap powder. But I don't probably know that I actually have been around rock and roll one way or the other, directly in the room with all these people, you know, 50 years myself. But we were in that period when... It was perfectly ordinary to be sent to New York and, and Los Angeles and indeed Nashville every week, and indeed Rome or, or, or Cairo to see the Grateful Dead. Uh, I worked for the New Music Express, which was the biggest selling music paper in the world, and you, you were just flown all over the place to hang out with groups, come back, then write it up, and then get paid for it. And, of course, Bob was suckling upon the BBC's teeth. That's all good. I was IPC. They, they paid our bills. But that was the era when there was so much money in music that even album designers could be given three weeks in Tahiti to get inspiration. Now, it sounds vulgar now, but at the time, the records sold, normal. It was record the norm, sold yeah. in millions and millions and millions. Yeah. And bands, you know. No, didn't demand that, and even in dressing rooms like this, cases of champagne would be drawn. In some ways, uh, the R&B and rap scene keep that illusion going with the cars and the, you know, the bathtubs full of crystal and all of that.
0: Have we not got one of those in there? No, really? we don't have them. No.
2: Unfortunately, Bob drank it all on the first night. Uh, <laughs> but the, uh, but the, uh, uh, that's the illusion. But then it was the reality. That was the reality that you. I was asked when I went out to do Michael Jackson in Los Angeles to stick around for another three weeks because. Was, um, three Mark, weeks stick around for another, another three weeks I was out there for two and I went out to his uh, ranch and everything but um, I was with a photographer called Joe Stevens who took photos during the interview two interviews we did uh, but then uh, Michael said oh I don't want to use photos I want to do my own photo session could those guys stick around why they needed me for the photo session was never questioned. Uh, the record company said do you have to get back to London no I'm done I'm 20 uh, mm. do you want to uh, could you mind sticking around till Mike was ready to do this well, Mike wasn't ready to do it for three weeks so that's yeah. how I ended yeah. up with a bit Beach Boys who were rehearsing on Santa Monica Beach. Oh, and the other Beach bands Boys. would come from me and Blondie sitting around, you know. I certainly never felt entitled. I thought it was the greatest job in the world is to bring my friends up. They're all cab drivers and stuff and brickies. I said, guess what I am? You're in America again. Yep, yep, it's a beautiful evening here. I'm in Los Angeles. <laughs> I've just ordered a, a big club sandwich. I've got a couple of beers. What are you doing? It's raining. We're going to be war <laughs> in a minute. You know, and uh
0: And Danny, it started young, didn't it? Because you left school at 15 14.
2: and 14. I at 14 1972 and they went, went up that year in the summer
0: and then you went to that little record shop where well, you met everybody from Mick Bobby Jagger him, to Demi Rousseau. To- chances yeah. are that's the weird
2: thing Bob I probably served you we probably met then for I the first time yeah. I know I would have done uh, it, it, yeah, the, the, the standard at Cleons Hill it was the record shop to go to pure fluke answered an advert in an evening paper and ended up at this record shop you know when you came in and you must have done I mean all right so so did Mick Jagger and Boland and everybody else and McGartney and Elton John who was Regular there. I was going to their parties within weeks of going in there. So Bob would have come in. I thought, oh, it's Bob Evansop. i got a whistle test you yeah. know. So uh, certainly- there, there were
1: the two shops. There was one stop, which is the one that Danny mostly worked at, and there was Musicland. Around the corner, yeah. Uh, in Berwick Street. Musicland was the one I went to the most. Yeah. I love Musicland and that's where I met Elton of course he was, so
0: he was behind the counter wasn't he he was yeah. behind
2: the counter well John see John used to run Musicland John Gillespie and he left it to take over one stop so yes. it became in effect that's why Elton started turning up there but Elton used to work with John 18 months for us started there basically yeah. and, you know yeah. when he was given afternoons off to go and record those Woolworths albums where you know cover versions Spirit in the Sky and all of that Young Gifted and Black most notably is what Elton John recorded he yeah. uh, yeah, had two of those not bad Elton but so I I was, if I wasn't certainly in Bob's position where he was, you know, the very the little seed at the centre of the rock and roll gobstopper. I was knocking around with him. I said, all the parties and everything, I was 15 years old.
1: And it was such a great time. I was so optimistic. Yeah. You know, they they, 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 they weren't still yet kind of the velvet ropes that then came out. No, that's right. Everybody was kind of on everybody. You know, you're on the same side.
2: That's what I noticed most watching the Beatles thing. You know, they get back six hours. There's no laminates. No. There's no security around. There's no dreadful PR people going, right, you've got five minutes. with. They're just just coming and going and turning up. That's right. Yeah.
1: And even actually this kind of continued, when we did the 40th anniversary whistle test series for uh, Radio 2, people just arrived for that as well, there was there weren't any laminates. We didn't lay limos on for anyone. And for example, Mark Knopfler arrived on his bike. He brought his bike down to the studio with him, so it didn't it didn't get stolen from outside because people were just arriving. And somehow that series recreated the atmosphere that existed then. And it was like that. We were all kind of on the same side when we done eat. Well, the thing is, it, it wasn't the culture. Now, uh, uh, pop music is the culture, and
2: everything bows at the next, the next big thing, and everyone wants to be the great TikTok or YouTube sensation. It wasn't. The newspapers didn't cover uh, rock music or soul music or anything. It, the adverts didn't use the, the music. It was very much invisible. It was underground, mm. as they called it. Mm. It was called yeah. underground for a reason because it wasn't what the high street shops sold. The Older Whisper Test had a huge audience then it was the only show yeah. because it wasn't important. It was important to us, but in society and, and uh, um, wider culture, rock music wasn't important. Even though it was selling millions of albums, it was still looked at as this kind of fringe thing That uh, th- because the people in charge of media then and, and certainly television were of the generation where they still, you know, t- t- reflected to light entertainment and God love it. And strangely, I went into light entertainment after the enemy and all that, but I started working with Michael Aspel. So I was fortunate enough, and the only thing I've got over Bob is I actually worked with Tommy Cooper and Malcolm Wise and and Ken Dodd, and I've worked with all that generation. got no photos of it. We used to do a weekly show and there was all those people coming through, Kenneth Williams and Spike Milligan. And so I I knew all that, and that, that, was, that was a bit of me there, working with all those people, you know. Leslie Phillips. I worked in drag with Leslie Phillips. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I dragged them. I can wear a button earring me. I was, I was really good. Um, you say
0: no photographs though, Danny, but actually we didn't have the phones, the cameras on our phones. No, but no, i spent years in showbiz no. I've got no pictures in of the great studio,
2: studio photographers. I should have at least put me on Ram um, <laughs> Spike the one who yeah. really will Well a yeah.
1: well, test well. we had Alan Messer Yeah he was our sort of resident photographer who was just in the studio with this you know, every single show for three years.
0: I love the fact tonight that you came in, Bob, into the dressing room to just have a brief chat. All all your show is live. It's uncut. It's raw. It's you two chatting. And I left yeah. feeling like I'd been to the pub with you and had a pint with you, Bear which is you. absolutely the idea. You two in armchairs. But y- you chatting about just plucking out all these amazing stories. And what we
2: do when we come off is, oh, we forgot to do that. We forgot to do that. Yeah, we forgot
0: but to do that. You came in today with the whistle test script yes. when you introduced the Eagles.
1: Yeah, because... Um, Danny and I. One of the recurring stories is Lou Reed coming into Whistle test, and it's, it it's is.
2: Part of, it's part of the wider. Who is the most
1: miserable rock star? Uh, cycle, the section isn't it? of the show. Bill um, Morrison and Lou and Reed. And hey?
0: we'll talk past this later. <laughs> I sort
1: of make up an introduction to it, which is me introducing the Eagles, and I do say on stage, you know, it, it's interesting. Reading back over those scripts nowadays is so interesting because I'm reading back th- literally through. The history of album music in real time. Because I I found the script early on this afternoon. I was just flicking through a few things. And there's me saying, the Eagles of this new band, and I'm giving the history of them where the members could come from. And of course they were fresh and it was brand new. I mean, right at the end of the show, you know, when Danny talks about the track, this track in progress that we play. Yeah. To round off the show. This is the point. This is the that, point
2: that it yeah. and it's 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 very, very difficult to understand that now. And I understand now previous generations used to talk about Giants of music, whether it's, you know, I don't know, the Marx Brothers or you know, old Jolson and people like this, people said they were never captured. You never saw them do what they do. I mean, I'm a massive fan of the Marx Brothers, and they said, you never saw what they did. If you saw them in the theatre, you didn't know where this was coming from. And that's the only thing I would uh, underline for anyone who thinks it's a couple of old fellas talking about old rock albums. This wasn't, it was absolutely brand spanking. No, nobody had ever heard anything like this. Now you hit Kraftwerk, people say, oh, that's pretty good. You understand? Nobody had heard anything like that. Stevie Wonder's album starting with "Music in My Mind," apart from Tonto's "Expanding Headband" with the uh, group Eng- Englo- Anglo-German group who backed him up on that. You'd never heard anything like that. The idea that, that, that any of those sounds now that sound you can hear them on adverts, but. But it was brand new, and when it, you, you felt the not ownership of it, but you were it was extraordinarily exciting because as I say it was underground music, and you'd hear it first on Olga Whistle Test or something, or maybe not, and the grapevine would and you go to a record shop and buy this stuff, and you knew it. I can't imagine anything worse currently than um, finding a new band, and you say it to someone and say, Oh yeah, they were on Channel Four last night, or they were it's now spread so thin. But then it it mattered so much, and it was so brand new that the culture, as we know it now, So better or worse, was actually being formed. formed. It was the big bang. Yes. It was, you know, certainly with the late 50s stuff. And then through, the Beatles now are so monolithic and so everywhere. To understand what it was like to hear that first time, it's the most extraordinary thing and can never, ever be overstated or understood unless you were there, which is not to gloat. I say at the end, don't yeah. no, it's not yeah. our fault. If, we'd be, if we were jazz fans, any jazz would say, I'd have loved to have seen, you know, a uh, uh, Charlie Parker. Any jazz fan would say, that, if you were, uh, would a classical person who loves classical music not like to have seen Mozart himself doing this yes. stuff, inventing what we now understand to be this, you know, ever-present canon, even if you like Hollywood musicals, to have actually been in the 30s and 40s and seen these things for the first time in a big cinema, in a big yes. night, well, this is how rock music, which is now both um, denigrated and taken for granted, to see that for the first time, whether it was Bob Marley and the Wailers coming to town, or David Bowie. It's that extraordinary sense of wonder that is robbed of successive generations and
1: what we try to put back in in proportion in in the stories. I mean, I've got 10 years on Danny, of course. And uh, so I heard those great rock and roll classics in real time for the first time in the 50s. So, Elvis, Buddy, Holly, the Everly Brothers, you know, Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley. Dwayne Dwayne Eddy. I was hearing these records for the first time, waiting at the local record shop and taking the single home and putting it on my record player and putting the needle down. And hearing it for the first time,
2: and hearing it, there's nothing like it. That's the thing you can't understand. But, but, well, if you didn't like that, you like something else. No, no, there was like the very term teenager. There was no such they thing. They weren't teenagers. If, no, if you put if you like if you put on a little Richard record, I mean Bob at, at his first name, there was nothing in the world like it. And you might didn't know if you were going to hear anything like it ever again. Yeah. And to have 87 percent of the rest of the culture turn around and say that's terrible. What is that? What is that noise? Uh, You'd say, I don't know. I don't know what it is but isn't it magnificent and slowly this would start to expand out other people started doing it and in this country Lonnie Donegan and, and, and yeah. Ireland, they would start doing it but it was it was this first drop of yeah. Technicolor
1: it wasn't a big bang thing. that's exactly Extra- the extraordinary yeah, yeah it is exactly it
0: and it's very clear to me when I've met Bob a few times and meeting you for the first time Danny you start not showing off about these stories you're giving us a sense no, we, of what went on over those pe- years it's not
2: opinions. we never offer an opinion well, I do about Queen and he doesn't about Roxy Music, <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, but that, yeah, that's yeah. part of the jousting. But it's not, but no, it isn't us sitting there saying, oh, that was great and reminiscing. It is trying to get across that feeling of how extraordinary it was, how extraordinarily fortunate we both were to be dropped right in the centre of it. But fortunately, both with a journalistic eye, we've always known that's a good story. That's yeah, a good story. And yeah. the story I tell about Van Morrison, for example, without teasing you, has nothing to do with any of his records. It's about him queuing for food. But it's a great story. It is just we were in the room we, yeah. we saw knew and uh, interacted with these people and uh, most of the audience didn't have that chance so we're now saying we'll tell you what do you want to know
0: I wrote a few key words down actually in the show in the dark and one of them was Van and Pasty yeah. just saying yeah. we'll save that one for anybody coming to the show <laughs> but Bob on your notes I wrote down scissors Mark Boland and you supporting I mean when you did the you were the turn uh, he, weren't he was you the turn. I was. and I can't remember <laughs> that you were Saying that the crowd was so loud and you used to play with how you introduced T Rex. Yes, right. I mean, that was, that must have been one of those really super glamorous
1: moments. Thinking about it now, because it was still only sort of three or four years after I had been living in London in my parents' house with my dad's, you know, very sort of patriarchal family and only child and quite protected and all of that. And then suddenly there I am. In the middle of it all in london out on this rock and roll tour and i i was so wide-eyed and absolutely innocent to everything that was going on i think in a way that's one of the reasons that mark always liked to have me around him you know because he did he sort of insisted that i was always me to travel with him and because he wanted to maintain some sort of innocent I don't know. It's hard to explain, but certainly you got it with me. I had no idea if anybody was doing any, I'd never even heard of drugs apart from them. the idea that they must be this guy in a long coat somewhere in a dark alley in the middle of Soho. Or something. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> the whole thing of it, I was so innocent to the whole vibe of everything. Um, so I was really learning as I was going along. I was, I was learning on Whistle Test. I was learning about the music. I was learning how to be this person, how to do this job. And
2: that's the thing as well. It it, it, it sounds extraordinary. And I always uh, introducing uh, it. cue you is it an extraordinary story that you ended up at the height of T-Rex mania as their support act. But it nothing like that was particularly surprising. Okay, there, there's usually a fairly series of mundane events that lead you to this sort of yeah. thing. I mean, I'll say to people, you know, I'll do Earth, Wind & Fire, which uh, me and my wife got together 44 years ago. She was the editor secretary at the enemy and we, we ran away because I was going to do Earth, Wind & Fire in Miami. And you say it like, go, what do you mean you're doing Earth, Wind & Fire in Miami? I said, well, I really liked Earth, Wind & Fire. So the company said, do you want to go and follow them on tour in Miami? And again, I'm 22 and it, it's, it's if you lucked out into it like me and Bob did, not that you took this for granted, no, but it was such fun. It yeah, was. okay, I'll go do Open and Fire in Miami. Yeah, all right, I'll support T-Rex. And it's only now when you look back at these huge names or whatever, you know, Michael Jackson and uh, the village people hung around there, dear old village people just before YMCA and everything in New York. And that was one of the wildest times. Touring with groups was very wild, but it, it wasn't was. particularly, I mean, I come from a very um, robust, noisy family and from a very robust, noisy neighborhood and I thought I'm going to enjoy this I never once did it with a straight face I used to ring my mates up and taunt them from wherever I was and taunt them I'm out in Los Angeles right I'm going on tour with Blondie tomorrow I'm going shoe shopping with Debbie Harry and I'm getting paid for it what are you doing? You just can't <laughs> make I it and I still up. retain that sense of absolute pixiness and Bob would yeah you supported T-Rex on stage but you had a bold and you, yes, you had a great indeed. time absolutely great I time I'm
0: looking at the clock and I'm going to let you go and do your sound check in a minute much as I don't want to stop. But can I ask you both one more question? i let you run to the stage. Cradle to Grave was the sitcom set in 1973 based on the life of your mum and dad, Fred and Betty. I think Fred was known as Spod, wasn't he? Infermency. I was just going to ask you what those early days were like in the Baker household and... Peter Kay played your dad. Yeah, Peter
2: Kay. Played. Peter came to one of our first shows. Peter came Peter to came the came first gig, oh, I yeah. did he? Yeah, uh, well, they're based on the books, my uh, autobiographies And I, when I first set out to write them, the first one's called Going to See in the Civ which is a pretty good analogy for what happened to me. Uh, my own tours, you see, that I've done two tours before this, two hundred odd dates, and I'm going to go out again next spring. Are almost entirely through that prism because uh, I mean, I've written for every comedian there is. I've been around, but I've never wanted to do what we do now. I've never wanted. To, I'm sure, you haven't, Bob. Never wanted to go on. Well, apart from some. T-Rex. Never wanted to go on stage and do this. Never had the slightest interest. But when the first book came out, I had to do something like this to promote it. And instead of doing 10 minutes, I found myself doing 35 minutes and I came off and a promoter said, you should take that out there like everything in my life I've never applied for a job in my life and okay and 10 dates became 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 but they my old man became the star of it and there are extraordinary I must I haven't done it for a couple of nights Uh, I must do him again because a lot of the audience buys the t-shirts with his name on he's been gone 11 years now but my old man was one of 14 children he was the 8th of 14 children and believe it or not it's an entire matriarchy in my family my nan Baker who they named the pub after when she died in 82 she, in, in her 90-odd years, had been a docker. She'd been a lorry driver. She'd done everything. Raised, had 14 children. But my old man left you in absolutely no doubt about his opinions about everything. He wasn't interested at all in a, you know reaching out or getting your side of it, which didn't make him boorish. It was just extraordinarily funny, extraordinarily determined. And ex- you know He was a docker himself, him and all his brothers. And his uh, attitudes are certainly within me, uh, if it might be the confidence I have, is totally from my old man. I don't seek anything from the world, but to just bounce around it and have a terrific time. And uh, Peter was a big fan of the books and he wanted that role and that's why he played it because he's grown. Once you've got Peter, you get the money to do whatever you want, it was Written by Jeff Pope and myself. But then everything happened, Peter became unwell and, and stuff and we uh, we didn't get to do the second lot. But it was an absolute thrill pleasure to do, but nothing in that series, which is just wonderful to do in film and have your house recreated by a, a film crew, nothing in that series was not true, even the most outlandish part of it because you can't. I might just finish up by saying this, the difference between fiction and real life is real life doesn't have to make sense. Fiction, you think, "Mm, how are we going to get from there to down? Everything in that, even from the fellow who emptied a can of, uh, his wife got rid of her. I don't remember this in it. This is in the other shows, but she bought some uh, hairspray and it didn't work and she hated it, hated the smell of it. So she didn't know how to get rid of it because it says, do not throw the aerosols away. So, so she thought, I'll empty it. So she emptied it down the toilet. This is on our estate. She held her finger on the buzz and just and emptied it down the toilet and then put the lid down and then threw the canister away empty. Our old man came home from work, went to the, to take his ease in the bathroom, dropped his trousers, took the cigarette from his mouth, threw it between his legs, and the <laughs> next thing he knew he was in hospital treatment, <laughs> <laughs> and it blew out the bathroom window. Now, we recreated that and really did blow the bathroom window out. And all that <laughs> stuff that's in it, uh, every single bit of it, it's just the stories I've been telling in rooms like this, not, not b- backstage, but around pub tables for ages. Oh, I think and all a- the books are like that. And the next book is like that because, it, as I say, real life doesn't have to make sense. So this. Meandering, crazy, nutty story that both me and Bob are living. You couldn't sit down and write that. People say, no. it's not believable. So suddenly, hang on. Suddenly, he's at a party with Elton John. Oh, hang on. Now asked. is asked to do television, and he hasn't even ever auditioned. Yeah. Oh, now in Los Angeles with Michael Jackson. Oh yeah. Oh, hang on. TFI Friday and yeah. no, on no, no, and no. on. Oh, now he's got his own series on a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Oh, now touring with Bob Harris. It was one <laughs> of his heroes. <laughs> yep. That happened as well. Doesn't have to make sense. Yeah.
0: One of your things that you you did with the old grey whistle test, Bob, is what you're still doing. Today, which is listening to new music, discovering new artists, promoting them, pushing them forward. Who should we be listening out to? I know you oh, don't do contemporary, Danny, but. Hang well, on, does.
1: hang on. How long have you been? No, just a, just I'm a- just going to say two words. Morgan Wade. She is incredible. She has an album called Reckless. It's one of the best debut albums you will ever hear. She is really the real thing. She really means it. Morgan Wade. She's absolutely fantastic. You
0: say you hate the smell of You only used to smoke when you, when you, Chicago, when you're
2: with the windows,
0: you- Have you enjoyed joshing with Mr Baker? I love this we so can, much.
1: When, when we continue to oh, do honestly, so. Honestly, Helen, this is... Um, I've been doing this for fifty years, as Danny said, just over fifty years now. More than for you, actually. A yeah. Yeah. when you're here. and on. this is one of the most enjoyable things I've ever done. I'm it's really large, not a real, a real. So I think one of the things is, you know, Danny and I've got we we. We've but, got very but,
2: differing styles,
1: but, but, <laughs> but it works. We we adore each other. We get on so well. We've got so much respect for each other. And I think that underpins everything that happens on stage. I really do, you know. I love listening to I could sit but there. But and pair, it's it's all mutual,
2: there. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, we've got no, uh, this advanced stage, the pair of us, got no reason to stroke each other up like that. It just is. That's why we're out here. And on behalf of the audience, we so saying, well, where are these stories? But Letting daylight in upon magic. When you say, where you tell some. I said, You would well, rather not, because then people won't come and hear them. But uh, there's a couple of three we've hinted at there. But on the night, it's just one after the other, after the other, after the other, uh, depending on how the mood is in the room at any given time but it's always high kicking it's never morose uh, because what have we got to be morose about Bob? Nothing. Absolutely, <laughs> we are blessed beyond belief. Unbelievable, <laughs> yeah. unbelievable. I'm a Pollyanna, but this is these are real Pollyanna ears. Yeah.
0: Wow. You know, I'd say Danny keep in touch, but I don't think you have a mobile, do you? No, no. I don't. No,
2: I don't. Um, I, I've given one for when we do Glasgow and stuff in case anything happens by my one of my daughter's 15 year old ones that she fires up. But I've got no philosophy beyond it. I just, I, I just don't. Whereas Bob loves the old social media.
1: Yeah, look, I, I, he's I always,
2: do. He's always No. I
1: don't. Well, no, you like Twitter though, Danny. I like Twitter, yeah. Look that got me. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, listen, thank you both for an audience with. I well feel, I've had, you had a, very I feel much. I've had an intimate show in the dressing oh, room. Yeah. That? Bob, shall we cook up a part three for next year? Yeah, um,
1: yeah. I'm up for
2: that. Yeah, we'll yeah. do a part
0: three. Yeah, when he's
2: out on the road with Chris Evans having divorced me, I'll bet. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to just a small sample of incredible rock and roll stories and memories from comedy writer and broadcaster Danny Baker and the wonderful Whispering bob harris i hope you've enjoyed our intimate gig as much as i have don't forget to download and subscribe to our podcast series at convex.podbean.com i'm speaking fast because they've got to go and do their sound check or search the convex conversation on spotify stitcher apple and google podcasts or wherever you listen to yours who knows where i'll be next week but wherever it is i'll be with another great guest see you then